Hello and welcome to On the Steps of 36, a podcast by RAA at the Architectural Association. Today we're joined by Emma Dent Code, who has been a counsellor in Kensington and Chelsea since 2006 and has spent her life fighting for those left behind in the Royal Borough. So to get started, um, Emma, can you please tell me your full name and date of birth or star sign, depending on what you prefer? Um, well, I'm known as Emma Dent Code. I have a very long Spanish name if you're interested. Yes, very. I don't often share this, so this ah, is a very special moment. An exclusive. Are you ready? Margarita Maria Macarena Emma Denti Icosa Mira Partival. Wow, it's beautiful. Thank you. And did you ever have a nickname or do you still? Um, I was called Auntie at school because I was quite tall, but um, Emma is, I guess, my nickname. <laughs> and where did you grow up? Uh, well, I was born in Chelsea, just off Kings Road, before it was posh. It was quite a scruffy neighbourhood then, but uh, lovely, actually, very nice. And then when there were so many of us, we, we moved out a little bit to boring Ealing. <laughs> um, and what type of house did you grow up in? Um, well, the Chelsea house was a, a Georgian terrace. Similar to the building we're in right now? Uh, pretty much, but much smaller, yes. <laughs> yeah. And how many of you lived together in that house? Nine. Oh, wow. So there was me and my parents, my five brothers and sisters, and my Spanish granny. Wow, that's kind of in India. Well, I grew up in India, and we call that a joint family. So. There you go. It's exactly, yeah. It's Intergenerational just, living. It's just just a family in Spain, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and did you have a favorite toy as a child? Um, yes. I had uh, my Auntie Madge um, gave me a dolly, which I've still got. Wow. She lost an eye, but I still love her, and she's called Madge. Um, and she was one of the few dollies that I had that was mine because I had hand-me-downs from my sisters a lot. But she was mine. I loved her. And still do. And still do. And you pass that that toy on to your children? Goodness me, no, far too precious. I do check every now and then that she can breathe. I check. I've got little quotes <laughs> <laughs> of my old toys. I do make sure they can breathe. I know it's a bit weird, but it's just one of those things. That's a sign of true love. <laughs> Were there any foods you you refused to eat when you were young? Fish. And what about now? Do you still? No, love I love like fish. fish. I love fish now, but I just hated it when I was little. I don't know why. <laughs> I find that so interesting how our tastes change over time, mm. and that we're not, you know, beholden to like a certain thing forever. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what was your most memorable holiday before leaving home? Yeah, it was my my last sort of grown up holiday in my teens. Um, my dad. Um, unsurprisingly had a, a VW camper van to keep us all in and our granny and rabbits and all the rest of it when we went travelled around um, and we went camping in the Loire in his in, in his uh, camper van so we had the van and a tent with my the sister one up from me and we had an absolutely brilliant time camping in the Loire visiting vineyards and eating cheese and it felt very grown up it was lovely absolutely lovely heavenly never forget it that sounds wonderful mm. have you ever been back no <laughs> Sometimes best to keep that memory intact. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what would you describe in terms of what you do? Um, well, for most of my career, I've had one foot in architecture and built environment and the other foot in politics. And it's always been like that. It's been architecture, politics, for as long as I can remember. So um, I, as a journalist, I write about design and architecture and political things. Um, and it's varied a bit now and then, but it's always been one foot in each camp. And you say always, so did you always know that you would end up kind of trying to combine these two interests in architecture and politics? I don't think so, but um, I, my Spanish family are architects, um, and when I was little we visited some of the my uncle's buildings, which were just stunning, absolutely stunning. 
Um, and where did the politics come from? I'm not sure, really. We talked about it quite a lot at home, and um, it just emerged, I think, from school. Um, it was quite political when I was at school. And it's such an interesting combination. I think so many people have been inspired by your trajectory to think about how they can combine their interests in those two subjects. But mm. I guess in terms of like the tools that you work with, how would you describe those as like your tools for agency or? Mm. Um, well, I, I never without a notebook and pen, a <laughs> uh, pile of books, <laughs> Google. Um, and my trusty desktop computer, which I just, um, I can I can type as quickly as I can think. So it has to be exactly right. Um, and um, I can literally type that quickly if I need to. In fact, I can probably type quicker than I think, but um, just a lifetime of um, using keyboards. <laughs> um, and... What is the space in which you work in? Like, I assume there's a variety of places that you're working. You're always on the go. Yeah, well, I do work mostly from home. And I've got I've got three different places to work <laughs> um, because you need a bit of variety. So I've got I've got a desk in my in the in the front so I can look out in the street. So I just do a bit of thinking there and writing notes and things and getting bored and then doing something else. Um, and then I've got two desktops. One, which is the one I use most of the time, which is council political stuff. And that's under the stairs in the hall, and it's a complete disaster area. <laughs> and then I've got a very tidy one where I do proper things, proper writing, and I've got all my sort of thoughtful books. Um, and I used that when I wrote my book recently. Um, and if I have to really focus and I don't want to be distracted, I use that other desktop with a slightly less perfect keyboard, but I can just I just think differently. So I've got three spaces in my house. I know it's a bit silly, but... Um, that's normally where I work. I don't normally work. My, we've got, there's an office in the town hall, but I don't really use that. It's horrible. <laughs> I think it's, but it's so true because I think the environment you're in definitely informs like how your creativity flows or how ideas come out of you. So I think having multiple options is a great idea. Um, and you spoke earlier about, I guess, being able to type as, like faster than you think. So is there an app that you can't live without? Um well, yeah, it's an app on my phone, and it's an air quality map. It's got an app. It's called Flow. Um, I haven't got it with me today, but um, I've got asthma, and so I just like to know quite how bad it is. So I don't. That, that's it, really. It's it's that I need to know how bad the air is, so I can know I can breathe. Um, um, and it's very handy, very handy, and it's really quite alarming as well. But I know where my neighbour is making cheese toasties downstairs. <laughs> Because it's off the scale, it goes into the purple. Oh, wow. Why is it always burning them? Anyway. <laughs> I was going to ask how cheese toasties affect air pollution, but I guess, yeah, if yeah, you burn that, them. <laughs> it happened yesterday after he'd had his cheese toasty, and it was still sky high. I looked out the window, and my neighbour was hoovering her grass, fake grass. Wow. So all that stuff you hear about fake grass being dangerous, yes. Yeah. Wow, this is very educational. Um, cheese toasties mm. and fake grass. We need to watch out. Yeah. And if there was one technological device that you could invent, what would it be? Okay, um, I had to have a think about this, but it would be, um, I do fall for people a bit. I'm, so, I'm, I think I'm a very good judge of character, but I'm not always, actually. Um, I want an accurate bullshit detector. I think that's an excellent thing, especially given, I guess, a lot of the conversations that you have to be part of where you're constantly trying to unpick what's truth and what isn't. And, Absolutely. And make sure that people are actually doing what they say they're going to do. Um, Absolutely. I think that's 
that's something yeah. that would be handy, especially for you, but probably for yeah, everyone. I mean, in, in politics, a lot of charming people, and my Spanish granny used to say, never trust a charming man. And she was right. I do fall for it sometimes. <laughs> and then I come unstuck because I believe them. And then they turn out to be um, disappointing. That's very disappointing. But I hope that this technological device gets invented sooner than you think. <laughs> yeah. So which part of London do you live in now? Um, I live in Labrick Grove just three streets up from Grenfell Tower. I see it every day. And I guess that must be both very difficult, but also, I guess, a topic that's at the forefront of everything that you're working on. Absolutely, 100%. It, it hurts me every day. I can't look. At, I can't really look at it, but I, it's there in the corner of my eye, and it hurts every day, seriously. It can, still hurts, yeah. Yeah, it really is like this kind of presence in the city. Mm. Um, it's something that I don't think anyone can ignore. But to live so close to it must be yeah. a constant reminder. Yeah. And is there, I guess, a hidden building or space that is near there that you would recommend people go visit in the area? Um, well, it's um, it's my, uh, my favourite space in London, which is, um, it's a Norman chapel in the Tower of London, and it's absolutely perfect. It's absolutely beautiful. It's very, very early Norman, and it's just beautiful. It's got three tiers of Norman arches, and it's um, semicircular, attached to the White Tower, and um, it is absolutely stunning. It's a gorgeous space, very simple. It's just all architecture, no decoration. Beautiful. Is that some a place that you take a lot of people who come visit to come to visit you? No, I've probably been there twice, but it's sort of embedded in my mind how beautiful <laughs> it is. <laughs> I haven't been to the Tower of London in a while, so I'm, I'm going to have to go back and visit it. Aww. And what would you say is your favourite building currently in existence, so beyond London, anywhere in the world? Yeah, okay, that, that's uh, yeah, it's that's an easy one for me, um, and that is Joseph Sert's, um Museum of Modern Art in Barcelona, up on the hill. It is absolutely stunning. It's so stunning. It's, it has the whole sort of promenade of of rooms and the the light and so on. It is absolutely exquisite. And I've been there quite a few times. I try to go there every time I've been to Barcelona. I've been there for a bit. But it's it's still perfect, even if it's packed with people. It's perfect, beautiful, wow. yeah. And if you could visit one piece of architecture that no longer exists, what would it be? Okay, so yeah, I had to think about this. And actually, we had a huge battle over this particular one. I was on the planning committee for it, and it is an, a stunning building right around the corner from Basil Spencer's beautiful town hall, which some people despise. I love it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Um, and um, it's 60 Haunton Street. It is just a moment from uh, the town hall, which was built by um, the architect James Melvin in 1969. Um, and it was a perfect cube. And the lighting, again, the light and everything's perfect. It has a sort of basement, uh, a lower space with a pool and a gorgeous lush tropical garden outside with huge um, uh, plate glass windows. Um, and it's, there's just something magical about the spaces and how they interplay with each other. And the upper floor has rooms which you can divide up with sliding sliding walls and so on. So I have visited it quite a, a while ago with a group of architects, and it was just gorgeous. We then heard that somebody wanted to knock it down and rebuild over the whole footprint as they do. Um, and we fought really hard with 20th Century Society, um, with the council uh, and with Docomoma that I'm on the working group of, to save it, and I'm sorry to say we've lost it. But it has been immortalised in a film called Exhibition, um, which was made in 2013, I looked it up, 
Um, and it's it's really about about the house and about this couple and their relationship breaking down. It is absolutely amazing film. It's it's so beautifully filmed. You feel as if you're actually there, and it's slightly embarrassing because of the way that, the way it's um, directed and acted and so on. You feel as if you're it's quite transgressive, as if you're imposing on someone's yeah. proper you know breaking, breaking relationship breaking down. And it's in this stunning building. Wow, I'm definitely yeah. gonna have to watch that exhibition. Exhibition, it's amazing. That sounds amazing. Mm. Um, and I, I wish I could have experienced that building. Mm. Um, so if you could select one vehicle to travel around the world in, what would it be? Okay. Um, yeah, I have got a bit of a bee in my bonnet about electric vehicles and how dodgy they are because you cannot get into an electric vehicle conscience-free and drive off thinking, woo, you know, I'm a, I'm a god, goddess, um, and I'm not uh, running the environment, which is complete life. You look at the... The whole the whole life of that of that uh, of that car, and uh, including when the when the battery goes and you can't get rid of it and it's there forever, complete nightmare. So what I want is truly um, a, a carbon zero transport from beginning to end, and I don't think that it's possible unless it's I don't know flight maybe, but um, it would have to be completely um, carbon zero from beginning to end with no impact on the environment at all. That's what I want. I want one of those, please. Well, we'll do our best to make that happen. <laughs> I think um, I think that's so true. And I think so often a lot of the these things that are being told, sold to us as a solution or as mm -hmm. like an answer, people haven't thought through the full consequences of them. So, you know, know. electric vehicles are being heralded as this like, yeah. you know, better well, alternative. Yeah, I've actually, been having conversations with firefighters recently about underground car parks under residential buildings that have electric charging and if an electric um, car, particularly, I mean, it happens with bikes and scooters, as we know, if an electric car um, catches fire, you can't put it out. So you could take it out, you could put it in a tank of water for an hour and then pull it out again if you were able to do that, which you can't, and it would reignite. That's because of lithium. It's so incredibly dangerous. It's unthinkable that we're putting them deliberately under residential buildings and there's a lot of people fire experts who are very very worried about that wow that's i'm surprised that more people aren't talking about that yeah well they're, they're talking a lot about um electric bikes and scooters now and about the um, fire hazards of that um but um cars are very very frightening hmm. and i think from that to follow on <laughs> what building material do you think is ugly terrible and despise upvc windows i hate them People are putting them in as if it's fine. So the Kensington Chelsea Council, who are very, very particular about how things look, are, are replacing all their um, council windows with UPVC. And if you really look into the longevity of it, how much light it removes, um, and all the other issues compared to it, if when, they, when they've gone, which they only last 40 years, if you look after hardwood windows, as I'm sure you know, they last pretty much forever, 40 years, and then you got, what, you can't get rid of them. Um, if they catch fire in your kitchen, which is the most likely place to do it, you will, as somebody told me, be dead before you get to the front door. Before the, before the smoke gets you, the gas will get you, and you'll be dead. So um, I hate them. They worry me. Um, and uh, people are just putting them up willy-nilly. Um, they're not allowed to... Well, they're putting them all over the um, council, um, council estates, but in conservation areas, you can put them in the back. But they're still disgusting. They're ugly. You can't clean them. 
Um, and they completely ruin the look of a building, even a modest little terrace or something. I think they hate it. Yeah, they passion. do. They do completely alter what mm. what a building should look like. And yeah. I mean, it just seems quite mind boggling that they're replacing perfectly good windows with these very substandard counterparts. Yeah, and they think it's cheaper. I said, well, not no, because actually, in forty years' time, and they're going to look ugly for the last ten years, um, or probably the last twenty years. Um, then you're going to have to do it all over again, so it's not cheaper. So I guess moving from the more building industry focused questions to maybe something like more about cultural life in London, what would you say is your favorite restaurant? Okay, that's an easy one for me because it's a kind of um, our canteen for me and all my lefty friends in North Kent. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's Maramia, which is a Palestinian restaurant in, in uh, Goldbourne Road. I just love them um, and I love their food. It's just heaven. We always have a lovely time. Um, the food is wonderful and we always want to support them. We have a, a very interesting discussions with them about their family back in Palestine as well, of course. How often would you say you go there? Um, not often enough, but every couple, two or three months probably, yeah. Hmm. And what would you consider to be your perfect meal? Well, that is shish tawak. I always have the same. <laughs> <laughs> With a gorgeous, um, uh, gorgeous, uh, what do you call it, rice. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful rice. It's f- flavoursome and uh, just absolutely scrumptious. I'm, I can actually taste it now. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to take a pause to just actually get to mm. eat some, some delicious food. Mm. And... <laughs> What was the last cultural event that you attended? Okay, so um, there's a friend of mine who's an artist from from um, from the borough that I've known a long time called Nicholas Baldion, um, and he had an exhibition that I'd missed, um, and so he made he did a special opening for me and a couple of the other councillors who'd missed it um, in um, exhibition space just down the road from me. And this is a triptych of um, the Grenfell Tower fire. And being a local person, he absolutely got it. He's not only an incredible artist, but he absolutely got it. So it's huge. It's about, you know, six foot high and, I don't know, nine foot wide or something. Sorry, I said foot, not meters. Anyway, you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, And it closes, yeah. So on the outside, there's this, this, the green heart. Um, and inside, there's um, it's like the, the the three different stages. There's the, the before, and he's drawn all kinds of the people who failed us, characters that people would have seen in the Grenfell Tower Inquiry, um, and all kinds of other potential alleged criminals. Um, the middle one, which is really hard to look at, but it's so beautifully painted, um, is the, the the tower on fire which I, f- I do find difficult to look at, but this is Nick and I could cope with that. And then the last one was um, the aftermath. Um, all the people who came forward and they're, you know, looking after people and packing up stuff and feeding people and all of that. And it is so beautiful. There's probably hundreds of characters and faces in it. And you can recognize it. Oh, my God, that's Eric Pickles or whatever it is. <laughs> and um, it's absolutely stunningly painted but it just tells a whole story, and that was just so beautiful. There was you just couldn't fault it at all. And on the outside, he was letting people as he closed the thing, letting people write messages, so we could all write messages. And he's he's travelling it around the country. Stunning, absolutely stunning. Um, that sounds incredible. Mm. And I also just really love that it's a kind of artwork that people have added to that. Then mm. those messages will 
continue yeah. to travel with it as it yeah. gets displayed in different places. Mm. And that, I mean, I would love to, I'm going to definitely look it up after this Do, because I'd love yeah. to see it's a Grenfell triptych. the detail with yeah. which you, that, that you can even identify the, the different people mm. from that composition. Absolutely beautiful. It's so stunning. He's done other things which are like a pieta of the, uh, of a, of a courier has been killed, knocked off his motorbike or so, and he just he does it in this kind of very formal setting, but it's an everyday scene. It's an incredible artist. It's really yeah. extraordinary. It's great to take these kinds of formats, mm. like from traditional art practice, and then actually mm. use them to describe contemporary events in mm. a way that will actually emotionally touch yeah. the audiences that see them. Yeah. And I guess earlier in our in our chat, you were telling us about the film exhibition. But yeah. I was wondering if you could inhabit one film, which yeah, would it be? It would be exhibition in, in Haunton Street as it was. Such a stunning house. It's, you just walk in there and you feel gorgeous, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you feel relaxed and cool and chic and... Yeah cultured and it's just a stunning stunning building something that all architects of all houses should aspire to I guess. absolutely yeah and what's your favorite television show um well just lowering the tone slightly uh, <laughs> <laughs> um I, I love i like watching murder mystery um i get very cross if all the clues aren't there because i like to guess <laughs> So if they if they've hidden the fact that this one has married to that one or was the old boyfriend or whatever, like it makes me really cross because it's not fair. But they have, they have to have the clues in there. But um, I love murder mysteries and I'm quite good at guessing. Quite good at guessing. So you're a good so. detective. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nothing too grim, nothing too horrific. But a, a murder mystery is. Um, I'm always looking for those. Yeah. I can. I mean, I think based on how you described what you do, and I think the combination of architecture and politics, I think detective work is somehow. Apply similar skills? Oh, maybe. I haven't thought of that. <laughs> I thought it was a quirk, mate. You may well be right. Um, what was the first album that you bought? Okay, I can't remember the first album I bought, but I remember the first single I bought, and I was probably 13 or 14, and it was called Wild Thing. God, help me. I, hear <laughs> I can hear it in my head. By the Trogs. And it was amazing. I just played it over and over and over again. And I thought it was wild and crazy. And it was too. Um, yeah, I won't forget that. I remember I remember buying it and putting it on the radiogram, <laughs> because this was the olden days, and dancing uh, all by myself in the sitting room. I mean, an excellent single. <laughs> in fact, I might listen to that after this. <laughs> wild thing by the Trogs. It's really good. And uh, which musician do you secretly love but are embarrassed to admit it, I guess, until now? Um... <laughs> Well, there wasn't really one, but I did embarrass myself by admitting it in, in public once in front of the person that I, I'd been in love with for 50 years, and that was Brian Eno. <laughs> so I, I was on the stage, um, and we were talking about, uh, it was a Stop the War event, um, and uh, it was the first time I'd met him because I knew he was, you know, he's the president or whatever of Stop the War. Um, and he was like, oh, my God, it's Brian Eno. Um, and... Um, so I did my little introductory bit, and uh, I said, oh, I'm just so delighted to be on the stage with, with Brian Eno, who I have actually been in love with for 50 years. And a friend of mine was in the audience, and she went, ooh, and everybody laughed at me. I was, <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I went right red. It was awful. He was very sweet about it. He thought it was very funny, and he bought me a beer afterwards, so that was fine. But, um, yeah, I, I did admit it in front of everybody, <laughs> and then I embarrassed myself because my friend reacted. Brian Eno. I mean, I... And to be fair, I think that's like a wonderful person to be uh, to be in love with openly and secretly. Yeah. Um, I had an embarrassing fangirl moment with Brian Eno as well when oh, he came you? to give a lecture here. 
because I'd been to his first lecture here when I was still a student and I had, it was probably the last person to squeeze into the room. And so when I started working on the public program, he um, came to give another lecture and I brought my copy of Oblique Strategies for him to sign. And then during the lecture, he was like kind of just, I guess, ad-libbing and he was just so incredible talking about all these things off the top of his head, connecting music to architecture, to politics, to economic theory. And then at one point he was like, do you have your cards with you? I want to show them. And he put them on underneath this overhead camera. And I opened the box and it said like the autograph was like right on the top. And I was exposed to the whole lecture hall as the ultimate fangirl. That's quite funny. <laughs> Which everyone then burst into laughter. But, there you know, you go. I'll take yourself. it. He has been lovely. He came out campaigning with me a few times as he lives quite nearby. And he's, uh, yeah, he's become a, a bit of a friend, an occasional friend, which is nice. That's lovely. Yeah. I'm very envious. Mm. <laughs> and what would you say is your favourite album now? Um, mm, um, I do. I like a lot of world music. I don't really have one favourite. I mean, I have to say Tina Turner, don't I? I have to say <laughs> Tina Turner. I love that. I love her so much. And she has been somebody who's kind of, she, you know, she she's epitomised people's lives at different times, haven't they? You know, that has been their song because that happened and so on. So, you know, that I think, I think, um, yeah, it would be probably any any of her albums really because I yeah. do love her, and certainly she has marked marked my life. Um, special tribute to Tina Turner today. Yeah, I think that's really lovely, especially given that, like, at the time of recording this, it's obviously very a current person, like a current affair or something that someone that we're all thinking of. We're all thinking of her today. Yeah, what an extraordinary woman. Yeah, incredibly extraordinary. And and as you say, like, I think so many people relate to her music. Yeah. So I guess moving from thinking of cultural life to just thinking of current events. Um, a few days after you elected MP for the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea on the 14th of June 2017, the tragedy of the Grenfell Tower fire occurred. And an inquiry into the fire began later that year, of which the findings have yet to be published. And so I thought it would be, I think because we've talked about it a few times in the course of our conversation, I wanted to ask you what you thought of the recent announcement that the report will now not be published until 2024, which leaves the bereaved and affected with an even longer wait for answers, but also for accountability. Yeah, I mean, we did we did kind of foresee it, but it didn't, doesn't make it okay. It really doesn't make it okay. People were still upset, very upset. Um, it's just the, any kind of justice is slipping, slipping away. It just seems it's going further and further away. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I, w I was told um, when I was MP, I met um, Scotland Yard quite a few times, the the uh, the team of 200 people who were working on Grenfell Tower Fire. Um, and they said as soon as the final report is out, um, we will start making arrests. I thought, well, when is that going to be? And who's it going to be? And we just know that some of these organisations, including the council, are spending so much on... Um, uh, legal legal advice and legal defence, um, will the people who are actually responsible be held accountable? That's the big thing. And it does seem to be slipping away, and I find that really, really hard. I mean, personally, I'm, I'm getting ready um, for, um, for, the, for, that, for the report to come out. Um, we just need to, we need to be ready, not only because people are going to fall apart, but what it says. We really need to, you know, I wasn't at all sure about the chairman when I first met him. I thought it was a terrible old stick, actually. But he's he's not only been forensic to the hundredth degree, he's also been incredibly kind to people who came to give evidence who are really struggling, amazingly kind. 
So I have um, I've reviewed my thoughts about him. So he's going to be thorough. Um, and um, we'll see, won't we? We'll see. But it, it's, um, it is incredibly painful for people who are waiting so long. It's just not fair. It's really yeah. not fair. I, I totally agree. And I think it's, I think the need for accountability, I don't think there'll ever be answers, but I think it's, the need for accountability is so overdue. And mm. I hope that there is, I hope that that comes in some form. Mm, absolutely. Um, once the report is published. But I guess that brings us to the next question, which was, if there was one ill of the world that you could vanish, what would it be? That's an easy one for a lefty politician. Greed. That's it. <laughs> I think we can keep leave it at that because it's just, <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. Um, so then now we're going to move to our quick fire round. Oh, yeah. um, so, which was hopefully just, we won't have to think and you can just give me quick answers. Well, I've written down my answer. Yeah, go on. So, what's your favourite colour? Amber. What's your favourite season? Autumn. Do you have a guilty pleasure? Britain's Got Talent. <laughs> I love it. Embarrassing. Um, <sighs> I think, you know, everyone has one. Um, <laughs> what's your most prized possession? Um, it's it's the bracelet that I'm wearing here, which is, um, it was my mother's bracelet, but I lost it. And I had it copied oh, wow. from a photograph. So I keep it all the time. And if I lose this one, I've got a photograph. I can have it made again. I was absolutely gutted. I'm still gutted that I lost it in the street and I still look for it. <laughs> but this is about as close as I can get. And so I copied it. And this is my most prized possession. Well, I'm glad that you got, to, I'm glad that you had enough photographic evidence that you could make a copy. Um, and I'm, I'm sure it will find its way back to you. And um, I guess to bring it back to where we are now, yeah. what was your first experience of the AA? Right. So this was um, in the 80s when I was writing about Spain, and because of my Spanish connections, I was the first person to do so, or the first journalist to do so, design architecture journalist. Um, and there were a lot of reasons for that. One of them was my godfather saying, oh my God, why are you writing about all this, this British stuff? Don't you know there's an explosion in Spain? For God's sake, get over here. So he got me over to Madrid and introduced me to some key people. Um, and I started writing about Spain. And I was the first person doing it, partly because of my connections, partly because my godfather told me I had to, and partly because I could speak Spanish, not perfect Spanish, but I could. And that was a time when um, most architects had no English at all. Um, there was certainly, you, if you wanted transparencies to illustrate an article, you had to physically go there and take it off them <laughs> and sign for it and then post it back in the... <laughs> by donkey um so that was the day and this is partly why i became you know madam spain for a while uh, because i was the only person who had access so there was um a lot of interest in that over here um the director of the time alan balfour i'd met a couple of times um and he got me involved in all the spanish things including coming in and translating probably not very well the spanish architects giving giving talks here oh, so wow. yeah i got um, i got quite involved and that was great fun that's amazing. I'm going to look out for you in those lecture videos. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they did videos in those days. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised. They have like amazing archive um, oh, really? of lecture videos. If I, if I well, find some, I'll send them to you. Okay. Um, and if you could describe the AA in one word, what would it be? Okay. Um, yeah. Um, now you can take this either way. Visionary. Okay. <laughs> that may not be always positive. Yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. sometimes it's completely crazy. So things, things I've, my long experience of the AA, something that's just so crazy and off the wall. But I still think visionary works. So that's it, visionary. 
Yeah, I would agree. Hmm. Well, thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure to get to talk to you. I've learned so much in the process and um, I hope that we get to have more conversations going forward. Okay, thank you. I'd love to come back. It's, I've been a long, long uh, friend of the AA and I'd love to come and come and meet your students and talk to them. Yes, please. We would love hmm. that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Air AA podcasts are developed, recorded, mixed and edited by the Architectural Association from our home on Bedford Square in central London. To find more episodes, view the show notes and explore other Air AA series, visit air.aaschool.ac.uk.